Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Woman, a podcast where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by our but women. And today we have a podcast collab for you with Deviant Women. We're excited to share it with you. They are so much fun. I know you've been a fan of their podcast for a long time. <laughs> yes, I really love Lauren and Alicia and how they share the bios of women. So they are definitely our kindred spirits. Yes, which is so much fun. And we got to talk to them about Shirley Jackson, who's been getting a lot of press here in the U.S. recently because of her new Netflix adaptation, or I guess I should, it's not her adaptation, but the new Netflix adaptation of her novel, The Haunting of Hill House. And we're publishing this on Halloween, so it's basically the perfect time to talk about Shirley Jackson. <laughs> it's so true. And we also, they tell us a little bit about her bio and we talk a little bit about the lottery and some literary criticism behind that. And then we also talk about the new adaption and our feelings, all the feelings about them. <laughs> all the feelings. So without further ado, here is our collaborative podcast with the Deviant Women podcast. So, hi guys, we're so excited to do this podcast collaboration with you. Yeah, it's excellent. We've managed to make all of the technology sync up and we're talking across <laughs> the ocean. We are talking across a very big ocean. So, like, how are yeah. you guys? Well, we're good. It's yeah. still Friday here. It's yeah. Saturday there, so that's fun. Yes, it is. We're in the future. We are. We're in the future. I, I always <laughs> think that's just so cool, the whole Dateline thing. Uh, my goodness. I would get so excited. Like, you could literally not live a day in history. You could go across one and then go across the Dateline again and a day yeah, would be gone. Yeah, I did that this yeah. time last year. I got to have two Wednesdays and um, then returning I had, like, no Friday or something like that. Yeah, it's it's very bizarre. So strange. Yeah. So cool. But, but that's wonderful, though. The strangeness of that is beautifully, I think, linked to, of course, Shirley Jackson, yeah. theme of today's discussion. Perfect segue. Yes. She is always so interesting to me and in how she is like, in America, she's like the mother of all things fearful, not gory yeah. per se, but like fearful and psychological, frightening kind of literature. Oh, she's just... So amazing what she does. Just the, the queen of horror, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, that's something interesting that I was talking to Lauren about just before is that I always think of Shirley Jackson in this. I kind of have this definition of horror that picks apart that difference between horror and terror. And, you know, thinking about those as really two distinctly different sorts of things. And of course, Anne Radcliffe, who was herself another godmother of gothic fiction. Uh, the, really the mother of gothic really, fiction it started yeah. with her. It did, back yeah. in the 1800s. And she had this, of course, this fabulous definition of the difference between terror and horror um, and saying that they were so far opposite that the first expands the soul and awakens the faculties to a higher degree of life. The other contracts, freezes, and nearly annihilates them. And so uh, another scholar, uh, Devendra uh, Varma, sort of he he defines this as the difference between the smell of death and stumbling against a corpse. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a beautiful way of thinking about Shirley Jackson because we talk about her as a horror writer, Mm -hmm. but really she writes terror. She's the master of terror. She writes that creepy growing sense of anxiety, of unsettling, uncanny, that's really where her talent lies. It's not about the gore. It's not about that sort of, you know, that horror of the gore. It's about that sense of fear that she captures so beautifully. I was actually talking to a friend about this today because I knew I was going to be recording this later, and she loves horror, like, horror and we were having this discussion about Shirley Jackson I was saying you know I really like Shirley Jackson but and even though she's defined as horror I really wouldn't say she's technically horror so I love that definition because it helps me kind of parse out for myself like I don't like as you've defined it like horror stuff but I do like terror like like those psychological thriller stuff. I love that. It's about the building sense of uneasiness and dread. And I think this is why also thinking about the definitions between terms like gothic and horror are really important. Mm-hmm. Because to me, Shelley Jackson, she's a, a gothic horror 
Mm. writer and gothic horror is really about terror you know so and this is something we would and i'm sure that we're going to come to talking about the new netflix version of the haunting on hill house <laughs> at some point. but i ended up having giving you know this big soapbox lecture to brendan my partner the sound guy, <laughs> um, when we were watching it about how i think that that show even though it's really quite different from the original book and again i'm sure we'll talk about this yeah. but i think what it does retain is the terror it's the the, mm, the yes. sense of uneasiness and dread that permeates through everything and i think when we come to talk about her life in a moment we will probably get a sense of why that sense of uneasiness and anxiety and dread is maybe a topic that she is quite well equipped to write about yeah and Definitely. i i love what you said about the new netflix version i'm very excited i i binge watched that in like two or three days and it was amazing so I'm excited to talk about that. But but first, I'm excited to learn more about her early life because I actually don't know too much about her biography at all. Yeah, so let's let's jump into that then because she is – it is actually – it's kind of ordinary life in, in some ways. But I think – and as a, a scholar of the female Gothic, it's also an upbringing that is kind of textbook psychologically linked to uh, to the themes of the female Gothic. So, so Jackson was born as unfortunately like the unwanted child of – of her parents, who were Geraldine and Leslie Jackson. And she was born in California in 1916. And it seems that her mother, Geraldine, was um, probably one of the chief antagonists of her life. She was this vain, kind of aspirational woman who actually told her poor Shirley when she was a child that she tried to abort her. Oh, my, oh my word. Imagine growing up knowing that you were that unwanted in your parents' lives. Because, like, her parents had just got married and they were very young and apparently she came along a little bit too quickly for their liking. Oh, well then. <laughs> and her relationship with her mother didn't really get any better either. I think, like, her mum didn't really understand this, like, weird bookish child that she had. And her mother, as this aspirational woman, really wanted Shirley to grow up to be a debutante and to be beautiful and, you know, marry well and in Instead, she had this book nerd who liked to write creepy things and didn't like talking to people, which, you know, to her mother was not Shocking. ideal. Mm. So she went up to Syracuse University probably to escape them, but her parents wanted her to stay in Rochester because this is where they were trying to kind of, you know, climb the social ladder. Her ultimate rebellion, though, outside of being a writer, was when she was 23, she married Stanley Hyman, who was not only a Jew, but a communist Jew. And so you can imagine. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and also, also the fact that his surname was Hyman. You yeah. know, <laughs> I was thinking that, but I'm glad that, that you read my mind there because, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, but of course, you know, he wasn't really the greatest husband in the mm-hmm. world. And I think this is what plays into those mm-hmm. themes that come about in her literature as well. Because he, I think he kind of stalked her a bit in the beginning, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, kind of. Like he read her, he, he basically fell in love with her through her stories first. And he had imagined their whole like marriage and life together after just like, yeah, reading a short story that she published in the university magazine. And he was just like, yep, this woman, this is the woman I'm going to marry. It is very creepy. That is like, that's the equivalent of Facebook stalking today, isn't it? But so then I guess he he kind of contacted her from that and (laughs) there you go. Shirley fell for her, I suppose, but it wasn't really the happiest of marriages, was it? No. No. And he was also a writer and an academic and, I don't know, I wonder if maybe he was a little bit, like, jealous or or resentful maybe of the fact that his wife uh, was already succeeding in this field that he himself, you know, was supposed to be the breadwinner in, um, and she earned a lot more money than him through her published works mm. as well. But I don't think he really took it too seriously. And she was primarily a housewife. Um, she was the person who did all of the domestic duties, she raised their children, and, you know, on top of this, she churned out all of these short stories and novels while he was just kind of this cranky old academic who never achieved the same kind of success Mm. as her. See, that's interesting because, I mean, uh, we're talking now, we're talking about, like, the the 50s, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting to think that at that time, being a housewife, 
was a full-time job. Yeah. It was a full-time job. You spent all day cleaning that house, cooking, looking after those kids. And to think that in, in, in amongst all of that, she still found the time to churn out the work she did is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Like, I get swamped when I have to clean the bathroom. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> but I think we see a lot of these themes in her work. So, again, now we're coming back to thinking about the female gothic. So the female gothic has a particular kind of fascination with haunted houses and, like, houses and castles and things. And, and these, I guess, become symbols of women's entrapment within domesticity and the patriarchy and the fact that their role as wives and mothers can be so physically, socially, intellectually restrictive. Mm. So haunted houses are these symbols of that um, entrapment. And of course, you know, two of her most famous books are, of course, The Haunting of, of Hill House and We Have Always Lived in the Castle, where these themes are like so paramount. But it's, again, if we look at her life, I think it's easy to see why. So, you know, I, I found it interesting you said that she was a housewife and was writing all of these things. Did they stay married during most of her career that she was working on all of these things while she was doing that? Yeah, they did. And actually, Stanley, okay. So Stanley was um, claimed to be this very progressive bohemian kind of intellectual. And part of that progressive bohemian intellectual was, I suppose, the fact that he just wanted to be able to sleep with his young oh, students. Well <laughs> So progressive. (laughs) So he insisted that they have this open marriage, which um, Jackson really was not on board with. But whenever she would challenge him on it, he would say to her like, oh, so I guess you're just like not as progressive as you say you are. And like, you know, so he kind of. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And really. This is abuse, really. This is like, this is like quite manipulative abusive behavior. I mean, and I think also it must have been hugely frustrating for a woman who was as intelligent and creative as Jackson. And um, she did kind of rage against him. She hated his affairs, especially like towards the end of their marriage. He did have, I suppose, something that moved beyond just a fling. And he claimed that he'd fallen in love with one of his uh, other women. But one meanwhile, of his other women, yeah. one of his many oh, other women. women. So Jackson, I suppose, she's trapped within this role of being a domestic housewife, which she also plays up publicly. So, and it seems that she has this kind of a love-hate relationship with it. And I can't tell if it's because publicly she knew that this was what is, was expected of her, but she also had quite a an interesting public persona that I'll come back to in a moment. But um, it is also a role I think that haunts her, like literally haunted her so for example when she um, was admitted to the hospital to have her her third child the clerk asked for her occupation um jackson told them that she was a writer and the clerk responded i'll just put you down as housewife um and she oh yeah oh my god that's horrific but she also wrote essays for women's magazines about housekeeping um and she actually became a little bit more well known for her essays about like domesticity than she did about her horror writing at one point. That's really interesting. Yeah. So there's, I guess there's this contrast between what she thinks is expected of her Mm -hmm. and how this plays out in her real life. And then there's also these affairs of her, which I guess, I don't know. Can you call them affairs if you're in an open marriage? Does it count? I don't know. But if it's a one way Um, open marriage, I I mean, I don't know. It's kind of weird. I don't know how she would have even have had time to uh, have affairs considering like, you know, he's just like bumbling around with his academia, sleeping with his former (laughs) students, but she's got a whole house to run, children to raise. And stories stories to write. write. Yes. And she did keep writing, but all of this, I think it did become a lot for her and she did develop quite intense anxiety, mm-hmm. which then turned into um, agoraphobia. Yeah, she had full-blown agoraphobia by the end of her life, didn't she? Oh, wow. Yeah, so she was unable to leave her house for a period of time. And actually, uh, she had a breakdown that meant that she was unable to even leave her bedroom for a period of a few months. She became addicted to all kinds of uppers and downers. She also started drinking a lot more. 
Her weight fluctuated a lot. Meanwhile, the issues with her mother were not going any better. Her mum remained really critical of her. And a lot of her letters seem to reveal that she kept trying to impress her mum and be like, no, look, mum, I'm successful. Yeah. Look at all these stories I've published. And, you know, look Still at desperately all- seeking that, that yeah. acceptance from her mother. Except that her mother just kept replying about what a disappointing, miserable <sighs> failure she was. Oh, my goodness. I, it, it's, I just, it's really interesting to think, too, because, you know, I'm thinking 1950s, and I, are you, you all familiar with the TV show Leave it to Beaver? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I just imagine, like, June Cleaver, housewife, is what her mother expected of her. And then here she is, like, subversively writing these stories about the patriarchy on the sly. But it's terrible, like, the emotional and mental toll that it took on her. Like, oh, my goodness. So sad. And and like you said, housekeeping is a full-time job, but it wasn't recognized as one. So when the dude came home, it was like he put his feet up and watched TV while the woman was still working. Like, you know, a 60-, 70-hour workweek kind of job, really. And doing writing. There's a quote here from her from an interview, and she says, 50% of my life is spent washing and dressing the children, cooking, washing dishes, and clothing and mending. After I get it all to bed, I turn around to my typewriter and try to, well, to create concrete things again. It's great fun and I love it, but it doesn't tie any shoes. Wow. I love that. It doesn't tie any shoes. <laughs> so it sounds like she was working around the clock. Yeah. 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 I imagine doing that for so long but also that maybe she didn't take her writing as serious like maybe knew that this writing was not something that other people would take seriously in her like the way that she says like it's fun and I love it but it's like I, I feel like she's being kind of dis- dismissive of herself but I wonder if that's part of her public self mm, though yeah. like uh, you you can't I don't think you can commit yourself to the kinds of stuff that Shirley Jackson writes and and be really be that much of a creative genius and a writer and not know that that is what you should be doing. Oh, absolutely. I agree. And I think perhaps this public sort of bringing yourself down as a writer and kind of like playing that down is much more a part of that public persona Mm -hmm. than it is her actual private self. Because, you know, deep down inside, she must have known and she was successful as a writer. You know, she did have validation of the work that she was doing. Her short stories especially were incredibly popular, especially after, of course, the publication of one of her most famous short stories that we'll talk about shortly, The Lottery, as well. So she did have success in her lifetime. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I kind of think maybe that there's much more of this public persona that she puts on perhaps to appease her husband, to appease her mother, you know, those people who are listening back to it to being kind of reassuring them that, yes, yes, you know, look, I know that you're all talking to me about my writing now, but, you know, really, back at home, that's what counts because my that's husband's great. listening to this and my mother's listening yeah. to this. There does definitely seem to be a lot of a, a kind of a split sense of herself in that split between the domestic version of Jackson and the domestic, uh, sorry, and the writer version of, of of Jackson. And I don't even, yeah, I, I do think that she's definitely a lot of it is that kind of public appeasement of performance. But yeah. I wonder how much of that is internalised as well, you know, because it would have been so difficult at the time to be as subversive a person as she was. So how much of that, because uh, her writing seems to sometimes be like, oh, yeah, no, I love my role as a as a mother. I love my role as a wife. But then also at the same time she, she writes that she hated being a housewife and only does domestic work because no one else will. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like there's such a difficulty at the time with people insisting that this is the way a woman should be and her intellect was not admired at all. So mm-hmm. it's almost like to be accepted she would have to downplay her own intellect to be published and to be able to work with the men who I'm assuming are gatekeeping her own art and trying to balance all that. Plus her husband being a complete, insert preferred adjective here, uh, (laughs) uh, that, you know, she would would have to just kind of appease those people. So I think that's doubly intelligent on her part, the fact that she was able to still produce that and do all of the things that she was expected to do but I imagine she must have felt so tired doing all of that oh definitely and I I I think that that's what we see coming out in her anxiety and her agoraphobia Mm -hmm. like 
she shut herself away for two years. She couldn't leave the house. So, you know, that doesn't just happen to you for no reason, I don't think. Yeah. Right. And, and of course, I'd also just like to say there's nothing wrong with being a housewife yeah. if you want to be a housewife. <laughs> I'm not, like, you know, that's, that is a full-time job. It and is, I yeah. very much respect yeah. women who do do that yeah. all the time. But obviously, for Shirley Jackson, it was not what she wanted not it out of her life. But also interesting coming to this idea of her public versus her private personas. Her part of, and, and I wonder if this is part of what you were saying just before, is that part of her... Um, public persona as much about being accepted had to play another role. And I think that this is because her fiction dealt with these dark, spooky themes and she developed a bit of a public persona for being a witch. Oh, interesting. So while her, her private self was anxiety riddled and agoraphobic, her public persona was really witty and sharp. And um, yes, she like delighted in prodding and needling people. And yeah, that she was a practicing witch. So in a biography first written by Stanley, her husband for her first book, The Road Through the World, because she hated writing her own biographies. She Absolutely hated it. So Stanley wrote this for her and he wrote, she plays the guitar and sings 500 folk songs as well as playing the piano and the zither. She also paints, draws, embroiders, makes things out of seashells, plays chess and takes care of the house and children, cooking, cleaning, laundry, etc. She believes no artist was ever ruined by housework or helped by it either. She is an authority on witchcraft and magic, has a remarkable public library of works in English on the subject, and is perhaps the only contemporary writer who is a practicing amateur witch, mm. specializing in small scale black magic and fortune telling with a tarot deck. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> She's also passionately addicted to cats. Same. And at the moment has six all coal black. She reads prodigiously, almost entirely fiction, and has just about exhausted the English novel. Her favourite period is the 18th century. Her favourite novelists are Fanny Burley, Sam, Samuel Richardson's and Jane Austen. She does not much like the sort of neurotic modern fiction she writes herself. What? The Joyce and Kafka schools. Can I blame her? And in fact... <laughs> except for a few sports like Forster and Warner does not really like any fiction since Thackeray. She wishes she could write things as leisurely and placid as Richardson's, but doesn't think she ever will. She likes to believe that this is the world's fault, not her own. <laughs> what? Hang on. What the? Wait, what? Oh, uh, surely. So I don't know. I think that's, that bio is probably quite revealing. Like, I don't know how much I, it was written by her husband, who we do have to assume loved her, like even while he was philandering and, you know, not being progressive in his uh, open part of his marriage, but not being particularly progressive in the taking care of some of the domestic duties part of his marriage. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we can assume that maybe he's like painting a relative, I don't know if he's painting a relatively accurate picture of her I there. Mean, she definitely comes across as like very talented and multi-skilled and, just amazing. If I could do a third of that, I would be happy. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sure like in the 1950s, their 1950s had to be the 1800s, you know. So I'm sure there was this romanticized idea of the literature at the time with Fanny Burney and Jane yeah. Austen and whatever and how awesome that was. But I mean, those poor women had to go through so much just to get published I mean, I'm sure Shirley Jackson was like, well, in comparison, I get to write under, under my own name. And and I think, too, be accepted for writing the type of fiction that she wrote, writing dark fiction about haunted houses and, you know, ghosts which are really standing in for the psychological horrors of the yeah. everyday world. She had to be this unusual, weird yeah. woman. And um, so apparently she was known to partake in, like, black magic she read tarot cards and there was actually a rumor for a little while that she used magic to break the leg of publisher alfred a knopf um when her <laughs> husband had a feud with him oh, that's amazing <laughs> <My> goodness <laughs> good job shirley yeah um there is that quote and um it's a, a wg rogers quote miss jackson writes not with a pen but with a broomstick and that 
quote is like the little blurb on the front of one of her collections of short stories. Yeah. Um, Shirley Jackson's Dark Tales, I think, is the one. And that's the little quote that's on the front there, you know, that she did, she writes not with a pen but with a broomstick. And the fact that that, I mean, that's a, a modern republishing of that. But it also, I think, it, it makes me think that it plays into that sort of characterization of her, you know, building her up as this kind of legendary mythical sort of, of, of woman that you're selling not just her fiction, you're also selling yeah. Shirley Jackson the Witch. Because that biography that Stanley wrote for her first novel, her first novel is not really about anything creepy. It's not It's not a horror novel. So when he's writing about her being a witch, and they used a much shorter version of that, but it still prominently, like, says that, you know, the short version of it still says that Shirley Jackson, we are reliably informed, is perhaps the only contemporary writer who is a practising amateur witch. So, like... Mm. Her biography on a book that had nothing to do with horror. Witchcraft or horror, yeah. Still packaged her as yes, Yeah, and it makes me think about how, you know, in America we had all those famous witch burnings and how it was basically women living by themselves or doing things by, you know, on their own that were considered typically feminine. So they were, of course, witches. And it almost makes me think of Shirley, well, I mean, it does make me think of Shirley Jackson and how she was writing untypical quote-unquote fiction for a woman so of course she must be practicing witchcraft yeah because things like um, so unladylike and again we're going to come back we're going to come back to the lottery but um her mother's comments to her about the lottery were like why have you written something so awful and horrible and (laughs) scary why don't you write something that makes people feel good oh my goodness this this is so perfect like so i'm a huge fan of Flannery O'Connor and you know she's like a southern gothic writer and her mom said to her you know one time Flannery why don't you write nice stories like (laughs) Margaret Mitchell (laughs) it's so funny that like moms have the same opinion about this kind of stuff yeah (laughs) it's funny and I mean like I'm in no way Flannery O'Connor or Shirley Jackson (laughs) but I I write a lot of horror as well and there are a lot of stories that you know my mom's like can I read that story and I'm like oh no mom (laughs) don't read that one you won't like that one and then I'm like one of these days mom I'll write you a story that you really like I swear it'll have like rabbits in it and and rainbows and and you know happy things I swear I'll write you a story you'll like one day that's so funny because like I have the opposite. My the fact that I write so many ghost stories comes directly from my mother, <laughs> from my mom. Yeah. So, <laughs> they're in there. It's generational. But, <laughs> um, but it's it's funny because she did play into this um, public persona of herself for a witch and being this kind of mistress of horror. And in another biographical note, she wrote. I am tired of writing dainty little biographical things that pretend I am a trim little housewife in a mother hubbard stirring up appetizing messes over a wood stove. I live in a dank old place with a ghost that stomps around in the attic room we've never gone into. I think it's walled up. And the first thing I did when we moved in was to make charms in black crayon on all the door sills and window ledges to keep out demons and was successful in the main. (laughs) There are mushrooms growing in the cellar and a number of marble mantles which have an unexplained habit of falling down onto the heads of the neighbor's children at the full moon i can be seen out in the backyard digging for mandrakes of which we have a little patch along with rhubarb and blackberries i do not usually care for these herbal or bat wing recipes because you can never be sure how they will turn out i rely almost entirely on image and number magic that's arithmancy hermione would approve yes (laughs) And so then I think the figure of the witch is a really interesting one for Jackson because it was so publicly known, but apparently it also kind of annoyed her because it meant that people could take her work less seriously. If you dismiss her as, oh, she's the spooky witch writer, Mm -hmm. then it also demeans her work. Um, And so I think that part of it annoys her. And she, I think, like even wrote to her parents that she felt embarrassed by it. Um, She said that it feels like it's a bad hangover you know, Mm. when people call her a a witch. Um, And yet she played into it so much as well. So, again, I feel like Jackson is this really interesting, this split woman. She's just a woman of all these contradictions and doubles, which, of course, is another very big theme in the female gothic. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't mind picking up on that idea and turning to think about uh, The Haunting of Hill House. 
if if yes. we can, if yeah, we're sure. okay with me doing that. <laughs> yeah, we'll just um, without any spoilers. Yeah, without without too many spoilers. And and talking about Shirley Jackson's version of this first, because yes, there has been a recent adaptation that diverges very, very, <laughs> it goes on a very different tangent from Shirley Jackson's novel. And there are earlier, I mean, The Haunting, of yeah. course, um, in the 60s was, I suppose, a fairly faithful rendition of, of the book. Uh, but this most recent version does go off on a different tangent. But, of course, The, the Haunting of Hill House, uh, We've Always Lived in the Castle, a lot of her fiction uh, that deals with houses, mm-hmm. because, as we mentioned, female gothic, a lot of that sort of domestic sphere. But in a way... Houses are a split thing in her work as well because houses are those places that, um, and and as in, you know, so much good Gothic fiction, uh, the environment is itself a character. The environment functions as a character in the text. It's not just a, a place. It has a personality. And houses function as both places that want to protect you and keep you and hold you in them and hold on to you as these kind of, you know, well, ostensibly safe places, but at the same time they want to destroy you. Yes. So it is that oscillation between the dis- dis- domestic sphere as this place of safety and comfort, but also that underlying evil and terror in that sphere as well. And in her fiction, houses yeah. oscillate yeah. between these two extremes. That's that's the way she portrays them. And having that knowledge of her her life, having that biography yep. there, makes that so much clearer mm-hmm. as to why this is a theme she comes back to again and again and again in her fiction. Especially, I would say, especially with her agoraphobia and the fact that she was experiencing all of like her relationship with her husband and caring for her children and all of this turmoil of her own life, but within a certain you know, certain walls. And when you see that every day, it's almost like the house becomes its own person. And so I deeply Mm -hmm. think you can see that in her fiction about the house as a character in itself that she also has a relationship with, or maybe the main character has a relationship with, or Mm -hmm. et cetera, without spoilers. Um, Yeah. So I think that's just so interesting that she was able, able to do that, but also express that in such a vivid way. Yeah. I actually find it interesting that there aren't, maybe more themes of active magic in her her books. Like like you were saying, Alicia, the house is something that is destructive, that devours, but devours particularly women. And yeah, looking at her biography, it's easy to see that. But it also seems that this kind of witchcraft persona that she had was also something that was very empowering for her. So it's interesting that she doesn't that that empowering side of it doesn't come out so much in her fiction, even though magic and writing for her do seem to go hand in hand. So whether or not she was a practicing witch is sort of, I guess we we can't say the extent to which that's true, but she certainly was a scholar of witchcraft. And I think it's probably more accurate to say that she found this kind of figure of the witch or the archetype of the witch to be one that was empowering because typically historically, this is a way for women to have this subversive kind of power to take control of their lives. And um, they're powerful and alluring and they can subvert social norms, which are all of the things that she is doing. Um, And I suppose like the writing really is the magic for Jackson. Um, Mm -hmm. in, In her writing, she has the power to change worlds. In her writing, she can make incredible otherworldly things happen. And she, again, I've got another quote, from her saying, I like writing fiction better than anything because just being a writer of fiction gives you an absolutely unassailable protection against reality. Mm-hmm. Nothing is ever seen clearly or starkly, but always through a thin veil of words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, yeah, I think that just shows how she's this woman of all of these contradictions and problems and, you know, I don't know. Yeah, that's why she's so fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, and I think that... But you're talking about that kind of that idea of the actual figure of the witch and how that figure doesn't necessarily, even even if that's part of sort of her own persona, it's not a figure that plays so much Mm. into her fiction precisely, but there are characters. Like I think of, I automatically think of Mary Cat as a witchy figure. Definitely. Um, And Mary Cat, by the way, is from um, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which you should definitely read if you haven't read that. And that was her last? novel wasn't yeah. it and so and um and also haunting of hill house was later in her life as well so this is like a 
later fiction that I think, you know, really gets quite focused on the house as a figure, which, yeah, as we've said, is interesting when you tie it up with that agoraphobia that was coming around in her later life as well. But another theme I think that we can pick up on these works and in another work we're going to talk about in a moment is the way that culture has or societies have, well, I guess rituals or these Mm. old-fashioned, you know, traditions that are passed down. I know where you're going. I see where you're going. (laughs) Are perhaps a little bit outdated. And, you know, maybe as a woman who wanted to move from the domestic into a much more active role, thinking about the way that society holds on to its old-fashioned traditions is also something, you know, she picks up on in her work. Perhaps the lottery (laughs) might be one of these works. (laughs) Lovely segue, lovely segue. I think definitely here the lottery is one of her most maybe the most famous story the one that most people have heard about even if they haven't heard of her novels and it's interesting in context of her agoraphobia thinking about this story because it's not in a house but maybe Kendra you want to introduce it a little bit yeah so we want to talk about the lottery because I don't know in Australia but in here in America if you're going to study Shirley Jackson you study the lottery typically uh it is probably her most famous short story um and it is one, I don't know, I feel like there's so much to talk about. And so I have picked a, I was looking at the theme of some different papers and I found one by Gail Whittier called The Lottery and Misogynist Parable, which I thought would be great for us to discuss because that's like the themes that we like to discuss. But I saw that you guys had added some bio information about the origins of the story and readers' reactions. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. This is just, um. yeah, I have a tendency to... Uh, over research. Oh, yeah. I understand. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'll give a, maybe a little bit of context for the story of the lottery, which apparently, so there's a, this, a little bit of an apocryphal story about how she came up with the lottery was that she was out running errands one morning in June in 1948. She was with her daughter. She came home, put her daughter in the playpen and then just smashed out the story. And apparently she only made two corrections and she says that she didn't want to fuss with it. And then she just said, it off to her agent her agent apparently didn't like it but was like well it's not my job to like it or not Mm. i'll just send it anyway sent it to the to the new yorker fiction and the new yorker fiction unanimously loved it and they picked it up but apparently this is maybe not quite so true it was a little bit of a slower process she probably did do more editing than this story suggests but nevertheless the time between when she wrote this story and when it found its way into the New Yorker, which is, of course, the, like, the place mm-hmm. to publish fiction, short fiction, uh, is still really short and really remarkable. And it was quite scandalous when it was originally published, wasn't it? Yeah, so she's the story, um, like, provoked hundreds. Apparently she was receiving, like, dozens of letters a day, hundreds and hundreds of letters um, for a period of months after the story was published. Most of them were really angry. Mm. Um, They were outraged that this story delved into such dark themes. And I suppose that's sort of like her mother's reaction, like, why couldn't you write a nice story that makes people feel good? (laughs) But, But more than that, some people thought it was true. Yes. That's the key thing (laughs) is that quite a lot of people were like, where is this place that they let this happen? Yeah. Didn't quite understand the concept of fiction. (laughs) But also the New Yorker doesn't distinguish. Between fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so um, they didn't know if this was an essay or a short story, which is really interesting. Um, Apparently some people were really just generally confused and wanted Jackson to illuminate them about what the story (laughs) meant. And to which she was basically just like, I don't know. I just wrote a story. You interpret that. Your job as a reader is to interpret that how you want to. I I reread the story in preparation for this. And I think I definitely did understand it better the second time around. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And I, I did as well. And so I, you know, I, I listened to it and I was just like on the edge and I had forgotten how abrupt the ending is. And so yes. it just ended and I was like, yeah. what the junk? What just happened? Yeah. <laughs> Even though like, I was like, what? Anyway, I feel like most people, though that is the typical reaction, like, <laughs> right. wait, it just stopped. It just stopped. Yeah. 
But it's the implication of the event, I think. And again, this is that difference between horror and terror. Mm. What she's doing here is she is creating the dread, creating yeah. the unease, but she's not showing, yeah. showing us. Yeah, yeah. And that's good and, terror. And that's something I really appreciate about Shirley Jackson's work is that, like you said, it is more about terror rather than gore. Because I can't really do a lot of gore, mm. to be perfectly honest, but I really appreciate the way that Shirley Jackson works on the reader's emotions and is very aware of what her writing is doing. And and that's so intentional, but so perfect at the same time. And I feel like with mm. the lottery, it, it's so impactful because I didn't realize, but it had made, it's been dramatized on the radio, it's been televised and turned into a ballet. Yeah. A ballet. I, I, I like, really need to see that because I just yes. want to know how that works. Yes. I, imagine how they do that. That'd be awesome. I need to YouTube this yeah. like immediately. I don't know why I haven't already. Anyway, um, so I thought that was very interesting. And so when I was reviewing it, most pe- most of the papers that I saw were focusing a lot on the terror aspect or different things. But one of the things I wanted to focus on was the feminism and, and the importance of women and the role of women in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for listeners who aren't familiar with the lottery, uh, a bunch of people are gathered together in this town on a particular day. And there's a black box, and every man from each family pulls a lot or a piece of paper from the box. Then when the per- guy who gets the black dot, then his family will draw lots and see who gets the black dot. And that's basically the premise of the story. Uh, so, and, every, yeah. and it's never really explained what this is, why it's happening, how long it's been happening. You basically have to do a close reading to figure anything, if anything. Out. <laughs> Apparently, one reader, one reader's comments to the New Yorker were that they expected the lottery to prize to oh, be a washing machine. Yeah, I read so. that as well. Washing machine. Because yeah. that's what you win in a lottery, right? You win Obviously. a washing machine. Yeah, um, I was like, well, <laughs> it's like the opposite of a washing machine, whatever that is. A, yeah, very different kind of a lottery here. So, yeah, so one of the things that I think that was important that Whittier pointed out in this is that this entire story focuses on men and the patriarchal system in which the lottery exists. Uh, so we learn pretty quickly that Tessie draws the lot after her family is chosen. Um, But she, in the beginning of the story, voices protest of this lottery. Mm. And there's discussion that, well, some towns over have quit the lottery. And this old dude is like, oh, sacrilege. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. Colin, that's trouble. Yes. Mm. Yeah. You know, women thinking, having opinions. Oh, my goodness. And also, we can't change a system that has been in place for generations because, oh, gosh, the whole the sky will fall down yeah. if we do e- that. Even yeah. we, even though we don't know why it's happening or the history of it, like let's say like the first paragraph, yeah. it's even kind of what we've been talking about too. Because one of the men in the story says something about you know, well, back in my day, they used to say like I don't remember his exact saying, but it's like when the lottery happens, you have a good harvest. So it's that battle between yeah. the public sphere and the domestic sphere. You know, mm-hmm. we want our commerce to go well, so we're going to, you know, do this thing. Yes. And a woman being, in quote unquote, in charge of the domestic sphere can't understand anything about commerce, so we're just going to ignore her. Yeah. So. yeah. I-, I thought that was just so interesting. And, you know, when I was reading it, you know, I tried to, like, turn off, first time going through stuff, I tried to turn off a few, like, the editor brain and a few different things just to experience it as a reader. And, like, I realized when I was going through there was this line that Whittier quotes that says, "Also, it also serves as a male rite of passage. So the line is, glad to see mm-hmm. your mother's got a man to do it because this teenage boy is drawing. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that makes sense. Head of the household. And then I paused and like, what? what? Yes. Kendra, what are you thinking? Like, yeah. this is a problem. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And because it was written in the 40s as mm-hmm. well, of course. And so that kind of ideology of the... There is a lot of that. I think when you read it, I became a lot more aware of it when I reread the story this time as well, is how much... Um, emphasis just subtle just it's 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 just so normalized because of course it would have been in her time as well Mm. is that men are the heads of the households and wives have their elder sons step in for them if their husband's unavailable yeah yeah and I just I just found there were so many like you said subtle things there was one thing that I literally gasped when I read and it's the quote from the paper is 
in the lottery scheme, a woman ordinarily draws her lot only when she is at greater danger and from a small pool than that of the initiating males. Significantly, her chance of survival then is highest when she has many children, especially sons, who will not mm. marry out of the family and increase her risks because women marry into their families mm. and the other, you know, they draw with their husband's families, I should say. And so women are encouraged to child be a childbearer. And yes. that's so much layered in such a short story. And that really is, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know. And she was just so subtle, so light, so deft yes. at hand and, and what she's doing. And I just was blown away by all the layers. Because it's story. like yeah. very simple sentences and like very simple vocabulary. It's like, seems a very basic story on its surface. Yeah. This is the thing I think that's so wonderful because this is one of my favorite short stories Mm -hmm. of all time and I almost feel a little funny when I tell people about it because I I feel like upon first reading of this story because the language is so it's it's very fluid it's easy it's it doesn't feel like it's that layered but it is so layered but that's that's what good short fiction is though isn't it like that's exactly what good short fiction is is it's the sort of thing where you know on the page it's like a thousand words or whatever but you think about it and you keep thinking about it and you find those little subtle nuances and the more you think about it the more you draw out of it and that idea um that you were just talking about that idea of how um this whole system of the lottery forces sort of forces women into being child rearers because that protects them yeah the more children you have the more protected you are is really fascinating because I hadn't really thought about that before but it's so Mm. there and what's also really interesting about that is the fact that it's the the compulsion for women to protect their children, to avoid having children, to avoid having to put them in danger, put them in the lottery is not touched Mm -hmm. on. Rather, we get the opposite Mm. where um, Tessie sort of like offers, it's like, what about my daughter? You know, like she's kind of willing to put her daughter into the fray to protect. It's, it's much more of a self-serving thing instead she's always willing to sacrifice her daughter yeah. so fascinating. and I, I found that saying that you know there was a lot of other discussion in the paper about how women were upholding the patriarchal norms because they were the ones to reach i guess that's a spoiler that women <laughs> were upholding the patriarchal themes more for very spoilery reasons <laughs> but they were very involved and the first to initiate said things and the men were just standing back at these like vicious women, and it was this idea that women are also part of upholding patriarchal norms and systems, and uh, keeping other women in their places as, as well. well. It's it's even yeah. like I noticed this time around that it describes at the end the actions of the children, which if we're talking about how children protect the women, they also kind of abet in the perpetuation of the patriarchy. In the same way, which is also interesting as well. It's like, how do you say anything else without spoilers? I know, yeah. right? Also, <laughs> the story, it's very easy to read. You can knock it out in 10 minutes. Yeah. If you haven't, you know, go read it. Yeah. And then spoilers don't really spoil it anyway. It's still fabulous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I, I don't know if you wanted to um, have a little, a little bit of a think as well about Hill House. Um, and this most recent adaptation as well, because we've all watched it now. We've mm. all binge watched it. And it is a really fascinating take on Shirley Jackson. And Lauren and I were talking about it, and Lauren was sort of saying how she felt that it was more of an homage yeah. to Shirley Jackson than yeah. anything else. <laughs> because, of yeah. course, it does um, deviate from, from the yeah. novel so much. I feel um, like it's more inspired by. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it takes a lot of the characters and it takes, um, well, mainly the names of the yeah. characters um, and and turns Hill House into something rather different, I think. And again, without giving away spoilers about that. Yeah. See, this is the problem with anything like <laughs> horror or psychological or any, any of that sort of stuff. Um, but in thinking about the difference between the sort of the, the filmic and the television portrayals of Hill House and the book, 
Hill House is that, you know, Shirley Jackson, she was a horror writer. She considered herself a, a horror writer. She she considered that her work used ghosts and mm-hmm. horror. She was all about the supernatural. But, of course, Hill House, when it was first published, was also, pub- was also sort of promoted as a psychological thriller. And she was not quite so comfortable with that because she was like, well, sure, there's psychological elements to it, but it's still a ghost yeah. story. You can it does walk a very fine line between psychological thriller and outright ghost story because we've got this main character Eleanor who's quite unreliable in a lot of ways. Oh, well, she's one of the main characters, I would say. Like we get most of the story through um, her point of view, and it does walk this line between psychological thriller and how much mm. can we trust and how much do we know and how much do we believe as well as having these trappings of ghost stories and haunted houses as well whereas of course the the netflix version the tv version of it is definitively follows the ghost story yeah. horror sort of path yeah but i think that that's the wonderful nuance in shelley jackson's writing is that she straddles that divide yeah. so that you can never quite be sure I think you're always questioning and that's what she does so brilliantly is she constantly makes you question what you're what you're reading and question what you believe and I think that that's what good writing does is it's it is you know it's that old adage of course of show don't tell yeah and that's what she does she's never sort of overtly tells us anything and this is the same with the lottery it's never overtly telling us things it's just showing us in these subtle little ways yeah and that's something i really appreciate about the haunting of hell house the netflix series is that it is more inspired by but i think like we were talking about at the top of the show it definitely takes that idea of terror. It's not very yeah. gory. There are some moments, right? But um, comparatively speaking to some other shows I mm. might have seen, uh, it's more scary than mm. anything else. And in the very beginning of the show, especially, each episode in the beginning follows one of the five siblings that have gone to this house and their parents are flipping it and renovating it. And so it's uh, they don't know if it's haunted or not. And there is like a present day timeline where after they've left... And they're like, it's like, what? I don't know, 20 years later or something? Yeah. And then you go back to the past when they were kids in this house. And so you never know for a long time if there's actually anything going on. Yeah. And especially in those early episodes, I definitely felt that they were like channeling Shirley Jackson and mm. using that terror and that unknown yeah. kind of aspect of a house in particular and making the house a character as yeah. well. Absolutely. And it does actually... There is a lot that happens, I think, in the show that that can still straddle that line. There are a few times where I think there are shared experiences that do mean that we have to question the psychological side of it. But for the most part, a lot of what happens really does still fit within that realm of is this a house psychologically devouring its occupants or is this a house supernaturally devouring Mm. its occupants? Mm. That's very true. There is this one, I won't give any spoilers, but there's this one character that one of the little boys, the little boy sees, and he sees her all the time, and they're like, oh, you know, she's just a make-believe friend or whatever, and she was totally not what I expected. Like, I did not see that until I was like, oh, crap, this is bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, but that's playing on those tropes, and I guess this is something that Shirley Jackson does. She understands that the audience are going to pick up on these clues, that they're going to see certain gothic and horror tropes, and that they're going to read those in certain ways. And that, like, plays with us. It misleads us. Yeah. I also really appreciate how the women were such prominent characters in the story, and I feel like they definitely drive the story. And the men in the story primarily focus on the relationships to the women in their family as opposed to what we would typically see as the reverse where women are relating to the men in their family and it's more about the men's story but this one I think is definitely female driven even in yeah. the supernatural elements I felt there were more women driving that part spoilers are so hard guys but <laughs> <laughs> well it's a very it's a very binge watchable show oh yeah oh so. yeah oh yeah if you want to sort of stop listening to the podcast now and go and binge watch it and then, <laughs> then you can kind of come back to the rest of the podcast yeah. afterwards. It's quite, yeah, it is quite addictive. And, and just make sure like that you, it's not during a storm or something that night when you have to go to bed because 
you might not go to sleep for a while. Just, <laughs> oh yeah, I for some reason I couldn't like walk into my kitchen after listening to oh, the Lord. watching the last episode. We were lying in bed and I could like hear footsteps in the lounge room and I was freaking <laughs> out. But of course I probably couldn't. But I say probably because you never know. <laughs> well, I mean the wonderful thing about is about that is I get that from the book as well. Like it's not just something that comes across in, you know, I mean it's heightened in that visual medium and we're so used to all those senses being tapped into when we're watching a a movie or a show but Shirley Jackson does that as well. Like she, she creeps me out. She genuinely creeps me out. You know, you don't often think about reading a book and thinking I'm I'm going to sleep uncomfortably tonight because I've been unsettled by a text, but she does genuinely unsettle you with yeah. a text. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's the thing that's so remarkable about the lottery. It's how unsettling that ending is. Because, I look, I don't remember a lot of what I read in undergrad as a student, but I remember that I did study the lottery and it stuck with me for 10 years until I started teaching it myself. It was one of those stories that just, like, got under my skin. It tapped into something deep in, like, my psyche about, well... I guess it's the implications about what she's saying that that comes back to that showing but not fully revealing. It's 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 enough just to make you go <gasps> like the horror is in you realizing the truth, not in having her show you the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. yeah. I definitely think it's very subtle, and and the last few lines of the story in particular really just remained in my mind. And the image of that last scene is just so stark. And I feel like it's such a, a great example of how sexism affects society as a community and as a culture and how that's just not right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a choice of words. <laughs> not right. Thank you. Thank you. So The Haunting of Hill House is fantastic, uh, the version. Now, if you are a, dear listeners, if you are a purist and prefer to see a more uh, accurate portrayal of the actual book to screen, then you might not want to watch this because it is more inspired by, but I still feel like if you enjoy Shirley Jackson's book, you will also enjoy this interpretation as long as you know you can able to separate the two because I think I think it's great. And I wonder if they would do a second season wherever they would go. Um, there's a lot of creativity there. Theo is my personal, my favorite character. Yeah, so, I agree. I really liked her. I love her. I love uh, her gloves are like a fashion yes. statement. <laughs> I was like, I want to go out and buy gloves. She's got now. like and wear them every day. She's got that like kind of moderate gothic sensibility. She's not full goth. She's turned down like professional goth. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Has anyone seen the original Haunting from the 60s? No. Oh, no. I have, I okay, it. that's just me. That's actually really quite faithful to the um, original book. Oh. And, I mean, they did do a remake of that film in the 90s. With Catherine Zeta-Jones? Yes, that's yep. trash. Don't watch oh, that. <laughs> but the 60s one is is really quite faithful. I mean, okay. it does diverge a bit, but it's pretty good, yeah. I actually think that that's what was most disappointing to me about this Netflix series. It's not, not the series itself because I did actually genuinely really enjoy that, like, as its own thing. But I really wanted to see a faithful adaptation, maybe one day. But I guess if you want to watch, like, a show just about a general haunted house, mm. then you can check out The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah. Oh, that's very funny. Um, so, yeah. So, before we go, though, I did want to mention some other things in Jackson pop culture, especially since this is fairly new as far as literary awards go. So, as if any of you are here from the reading them, and you know I'm obsessed with bookish awards because I think they're important. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so there was actually there's actually now Shirley Jackson Award, and it was first presented in July of 2007 in Burlington, Massachusetts. And it says it is in recognition of the legacy of Shirley Jackson's writing and with permission of the authors and state, always important, the Shirley Jackson Awards have been established for outstanding achievement in literature of psychological suspense, horror, and the dark fantastic or dark fantasy, if you're a lay reader person like myself in in that sense. Um, I love that. The dark fantastic. Ooh, yeah, like, I like that. We'll the make that fantastic. literary. Um, <laughs> So I, I really love that they did this because one of the things I've become frustrated with, I mean, I study literature, I, I adore it, but sometimes people are really snobby about genre. Yes. yes. 
And, yes, and, absolutely. And Shirley Jackson is just a great writer, period. And I'm so glad that they're now acknowledging other writers who also do well with this. Um, one of my favorite um, horror writers, Stephen Graham Jones, he was, um, I think, shortlisted for the Shirley Jackson Award. He does a lot of that borderline, like, scary slash gory kind of stuff. I, I love I love his work. So yeah, they, I think this is so great because it's a particular type of horror. I think a lot of people think Stephen King and that's about it. But really, the, there's a wide spectrum of horror, not just... Well, Stephen King and his sons. Yeah. yeah. No offense. I, yeah. I just I just read The Shining this summer. It's great. Oh, it's fine. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. So did I. I'm halfway through it right now, actually. Like, literally halfway through it. It has way more depth than I ever thought it would have. I'm surprised, honestly. Like, I... Really? Yeah. I'm enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would. <laughs> I'm a bit of a snob, though. It's like, maybe because our bar was, like, here, you know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, you didn't have to do very much, but I mean, considering the movie didn't have a ton of depth to it. Hey, the book is so much more. I love know. that movie. Back off that movie. Back off. It's good. It's a good film. <laughs> yeah, it's good. But I, I think, as you said, though, that, that difference between that idea of highbrow literary fiction and lowbrow horror really is one of those genres. And, and you know how much... Genre fiction is devalued mm. as genre fiction mm. in some way that it's lesser than. Yeah. But as you say, anything you read by Shirley Jackson, it, it doesn't matter what genre you put on it, you know, like psychological thriller, horror, all of the dark fantastic, mm. it's still excellent fiction. Yeah. I mean, it's beautifully written. Yeah. It's masterful. It's mistressful, perhaps, <laughs> is a term we might use. Um, and I think that's the key thing, you know, recognising the value in genres of mm. all shapes and sizes. Yeah, and I think it really took probably too long for Shirley Jackson to be, like, fully recognised in her own time, like, critically. Like, the lottery was all that she was really known for and people didn't really look at her much outside of that. And I have to, like, apologise because in my reading for this episode I came across a quote and I can't really remember where it's from or who said it. But basically it's about, like, they were putting forward Shirley Jackson as, like, a great American writer and someone was like, oh, God, have we just jumped the shark if we're using Shirley Jackson because she's only known for this one story. What? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And it's like, are you kidding me? Uh, One story? hmm. Shirley Jackson is, in my opinion, like one of the great mid-century American writers. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. It, it's like the dude that said Philip Roth, you know, had died and so-and-so wasn't writing anymore. So are there any other great American writers out there? <laughs> no. Oh, <yeah. laughs> right. Just like, um, you obviously need to do a little more research yeah. <laughs> before you yeah. go on Twitter. Yeah. Just <laughs> Anyway... But yeah, so this has been great. I've loved studying Shirley Jackson for this show and learning more about her. Yes. I only knew her primary works, such yeah. as The Lottery and The Haunting House and We've Always Lived in the Castle and just really didn't know much about her. So this has been great learning more. Yeah. And I think for life. me, it really has helped me to understand like the type of fiction that she writes. And, you know, like it seems so obvious to me now why yeah. she wrote what she did. Yeah. And and also, you know, we've touched on some of those particular works and those well-known works by her. Um, but I also wanted to say, you know, I'm a, a lover of short stories yeah. and they're a passion of mine. I love reading them and I, I love writing them. And Shirley Jackson's short stories, you know, if you don't want to dive straight into her novels, then there's plenty of collections of Shirley Jackson's mm. short stories. Um, there's one collection that I didn't love actually and I think that one's um, Just an Ordinary Day, yeah. which was released kind of release recently I think. But um, some of those stories, I just wasn't into it. And then I read afterwards that they were actually published um, – afterwards like they were unpublished short stories that they found in a box like out in the garage or whatever and so you know they're published posthumously Mm. and I think that's an interesting Mm. a really interesting thing when you think about texts from authors um that are published after they died and you know they they would have loved to go over them they didn't get a a chance to edit them and whatever and you know you just find a box and they go horror publish those (laughs) yeah I know um yeah Shirley Jackson sort of turning in her grave over that but um but she did publish a lot Mm. of short stories so you know if you don't want to dive into her novels, then you can definitely dive into yeah. her short fiction. Straight gateway, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, Autumn is our short story lover. I mean, I also do, but I mean, compared to Autumn, it's like, you know, love language or something. Indeed. 
Well, and I haven't, I've really only read the lottery of hers, but this talk has inspired me to go get more of her stories. So. Yeah, do it. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, this has been great. I, I love our like combo of humanities here. And it's yes. like, <laughs> I don't know, getting the team together of like <laughs> a team or, Good team. Yeah. you know, yeah. all the Marvel superheroes. Yes. 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 <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for getting in touch and, you know, because I look, I'm already a subscriber of the Reading Women podcast. I've got your Reading Women checklist, which I recommend oh, everybody yay. checks out if you want to get through some um, a diverse range of books by women this year. Well, there's not much of the year left. No. But there is enough time left to make sure you read some Shirley Jackson. There sure is. <laughs> So that was our episode with Lauren and Alicia, the women behind Deviant Women. It was such fun to talk with them. They're just hilarious. They are so fun. And I reread the lottery to record this episode, and I'd forgotten how nuanced it was. So it was fun to learn a little bit about Shirley Jackson as well. And you, of course, can go check out all of the episodes of Deviant Women over on their website, deviantwomenpodcast.com, or wherever you find your podcast. Definitely check them out. I know I check my podcatcher every other week to make sure that their episode has arrived. <laughs> and you can also follow them on social media at Deviant Women. And then, as always, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester me at autumn privet you can also find us at readingwomenpodcast.com and thanks again to lauren and alicia for coming onto the podcast and doing this collaboration with us we had so much fun and thank you all so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon bye